Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. I first heard of Johnny McClure when I announced our 2023 members trip to Montana. I'd committed to dates that aligned with our filming of Kelly Gallup's masterclass for Anchored Outdoors, which I hope most of you are already members of. As word spread through our community, so too did the requests that I get Johnny on the show. Thankfully, I was able to steal an hour with him once we were off the water. Though Johnny began fly fishing as a kid, it wasn't until 2003 that he began working at the Slide-In in Montana. He has since become a guest favorite and is in regular demand for anglers both new and old. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss how he landed in Montana, the ins and outs of fishing the Madison, streamer fishing, color changes, and more. While on the subject of streamers, we have just launched our latest class with Kevin Feenstra, and it's one you don't want to miss. In this 54-chapter class, you'll learn when, where, and how to fish baitfish, as well as how to tie them. If you're ever lost looking in your streamer box, this class will give you the confidence and knowledge to decide which fly to tie on. More importantly, you'll learn how to fish it. Not all streamers are created equal, and many are designed with different presentation tactics in mind. Use code EARLYBIRD40 for a hefty 40% discount and mega early bird bonuses, including a free one-year membership, which is packed with value, as well as access to both Kevin's Baitfish class and Mia and Marty Shepard's Winter Steelhead class for life. The coupon is set to expire at the end of this week, so don't miss out. Again, that is code EARLYBIRD40, no spaces. I'll include the direct links in the show notes here, and you can also find them in all of Anchored's latest social media posts. (laughs) 
I was born outside Chicago, Illinois, and uh, that's where my parents still live. Okay, and mm -hmm. we are currently sitting in Montana. Obviously, I'm not filming this, so nobody can see us, but we are going old school. So I'm recording on my phone, and you are recording on my old snowball mic. I like it. It felt like back in the 50s or something like yeah, that. Right. It's, <laughs> it's nice. It's kind of a space age as well. Yeah, so, and a lot of people don't know this. I shot the first 50 episodes on that thing, so it does the trick, but if the audio is poor, I'm sorry, everybody. Gotcha. I had to get you while I was here. And just so that you know, so basically what had happened was I booked this trip to come and film Kelly's Masterclass mm -hmm. and, you know, take some members and have this uh, hosted trip. And I started getting messages not only from members, but from general public, just the general public saying, Johnny's there. You need to sit him down and pick his brain. <laughs> and I was like, who's Johnny? No offense. No, no problem. Johnny? That's what I generally try to keep is like that sort of mystery. Who, who am I? And then I met you and I gathered that and yeah. I spoke with Kelly and Kelly just kept talking. Like your name just kept popping up everywhere I turned. And so We've done me, a lot of stuff together. So yeah, we have a lot of, a lot of stories in the last 20 years. So it's not surprising. The universe was clearly screaming that I had to sit down with you and I didn't want to do it on zoom. Like we were right here. Yeah. Might as well do it here. Well, I'm happy to be here. Me, me too. Yeah. Even with our kind of old school machinery or equipment. So it's all new to me. So Right, so anyone, anyone listening, sorry for the quality. Okay, so you're born there. Oh my God, Kelly. If you're yeah. not, if you're, you can't see it right now, but Kelly's actually going down to work out and is wearing a, we're in Kelly's house. He's wearing a uh, yellow tank top that is maybe four sizes too small. It's like Borat, but on a ripped body. I think so. so. If you haven't seen Kelly without a shirt on, Kelly's, Rips. Yeah, he's doing pretty good these days. It's, he's on the juice again. You gotta watch out. <laughs> yeah. Well. Enjoy your workout. Anyway, slight distraction. Okay, so born in Chicago, mm -hmm. we are now in Montana. Let's pick through a little bit about how you ended up here. Um, I've been addicted to fishing since I, I don't know, maybe two, three years old. Uh, my dad and mom got me a Zebco rod. It was a Snoopy rod with just a little weight at the end. And for some reason, I just liked throwing it. it. Just started from there. Didn't matter if it was swimming pool, gravel pit, anything with water. I was just drawn to it and um, just kind of started from there. I, that's all I ever really wanted to do was go fish. And it really, really didn't have a lot to fish around there. Uh, we had you know, again, gravel pits and lagoons and um, beaches and stuff like that. So I spent most of my time daydreaming about fishing. And that's kind of where it started. We used to go up to, to Michigan during the summer and pretty much spent most of my free time on a dock just looking for a smallmouth bass, rock bass, anything that would eat. And uh, Kelly actually had a, a shop up there. We'll skip for it a, a number of years. Um, you, but know I, gonna, you know I'm going to take you back, though. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> that's fine. But I mean, it's a long story, so I figured we'd, we'd start there yeah. and just how it how it came to be. Well, um, basically, I remember walking in his shop when I was when I was young, like when I was like twelve or thirteen. I I got into fly fishing when I was twelve. Oh right, he had a shop in Michigan. Yeah, in Traverse City, it's called the Troutsman. Sorry, my bad. Right. Yeah, it was awesome. It was uh, had so many cool rods, and it was my first exposure to fleece fabric if that's hard to believe he had this huge wall of patagonia snap tees and it was the first time I'd, I'd ever seen 
fleece. It was, I was like, what is this magical fabric? And he just had this huge wall of it. Um, but yeah, we, we went in and out of there and, um, you know, for years. And, and finally, a buddy of mine and I um, went on a guide trip through his shop when I was like 16. And that was my first exposure to streamer fishing. So that's the first time I really got to go on the, on the river. We were on the flies only in the, on the uh, uh, Manistee. And, you know, caught a couple of really nice browns and I was hooked and I just haven't really looked back. Um, I'm in Montana now because I think I decided I wanted to be a fishing guide when I was about 16. Um, I had a different um, schedule in my life at that point. I, I wasn't thinking that it would be something I could support myself on yet. So I said, you know, maybe I could do something and then guide during the summer. Um, so as I got older, I was like, yeah, you know, maybe I can teach. I uh, wanted to teach high school English. And um, anyway, uh, I wanted to one day guide. So I went up to, I did a guide school at Sweetwater, I believe, on the Bighorn when I was about 19, 20. And I was supposed to get over, um, they gave me a certificate after I passed and they had a job lined up for me the next year on the Alagnac. And as it turned out, some other guys were coming back that they thought were leaving. So I was kind of bummed. I was really excited to go out there. Um, but as it turns out, Kelly had been out here for two years at that point. And I'd heard that he might need a hand. A couple of people weren't coming back. Um, so said, you know, hey, if you could use a hand, that'd be great. And he's like, well, I can't really pay you very much and you're not going to guide, but if you want to come out and see what happens, you know, go for it. And I left a couple weeks later and that was my first exposure to the slide in. So I lived here over by the barn over there by the dump trailer in a tent <laughs> and dirt bagged it out of my duffel bag. And, and how just, old were you again? I was 21 at that point. Okay. Yeah. So I've been here since I was 21. I'm 42. So yeah, it's crazy. Time flies. I did not realize that you and Kelly went back to Michigan. Yeah, that's where that's kind of where it all started, I would say. And um, yeah, it's been it's been a journey. Uh, we've seen a lot of stuff together, but that's 20, 20 years ago. Yeah. Right. So that's why I'm in Montana now. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. So when you were back in the Midwest. What were you, what, what was it? I mean, I'm assuming your parents were together. Yeah. We played a lot of sports. I mean, that's kind of what I did. You played sports, you went to the mall and, uh, that was, and you went to school. That was pretty much it. We didn't have a lot of, um, woods or rivers and stuff to go to. So when I, uh, I should preface this, like my dad got me into fishing at a very young that's age. Yeah. yeah. My dad was always taking me out going fishing. Um, and so I got that bug from him. And then um, one of my really good friends, Scott Miller, who lived three doors down from me, his dad fly fish, his name is John Miller. We call him Doc. He's actually still comes out uh, to the Madison quite a bit, usually once or twice a year. So I remember very vividly, I got asked to go fishing. I was like, absolutely, I'll go fishing. That's all I want to do. So he said, uh, you know, be here at seven o'clock and I, showed up with my Plano tackle box and I had my rod and um, said, do I need bait? Or I just have lots of cranks and stuff like that. And he said, you know, would you like to try fly fishing today? And I said, sure, like I've never tried it before. So we went out to a pond and uh, he showed me how to cast and caught a couple of bluegill, ended up having a, a largemouth crash, one of the bluegill at the end. And 
it was just over. Like I, I, we were chugging, you know, purple poppers and it was just the most fun I've ever had. And, and after that, I was, I was kind of all in as far as the rabbit hole goes. That's all I wanted to do. That's all I thought about. I was actually looking at some of my old notebooks that my mom saved because she was moving and shipping all of them back. And they're from like, you know, fourth or fifth grade. And there's all these like math problems with all these like different flies and different rivers and stuff in there and rods and stuff. So I don't know. I, I definitely went down, you know, head first and tried not to look back. So that's kind of how I came to be here. Just pretty obsessive person. <laughs> that is fantastic. That's way yeah. cooler than I thought. Yeah. Okay. So what about after high school? Did you go to college? I did. I went to uh, University of Vermont and it was really cool. The Northeast is really special. I got to, everything's so close there too. Like in the time it takes me to get to the Missouri, you know, you can go from Burlington to Boston. So that's, we, we used to fish the Housatonic and um, a couple of places up in New York and some other stuff all around the Northeast. And it was just really fun to go explore. It was a fun time in my life. And I, you know, when you're young, you got so much energy and love to travel, but I don't know. I, I really, um, the first time I came to Montana I, when I was 19, and I looked out and I was like, God, this place is just, this is where it's supposed to happen, you know? So the goal became one day to, you know, cut my teeth enough that I could maybe find something out here, like find some purpose to be out here because it was just so beautiful. And um, that, so I came here in 2002, 2003, somewhere in there. Yeah. How did the family feel about you up and leaving at 21? chasing fishing well i mean i it was they've known first of all that i'm a i don't know definitely the black sheep of my family but not in a really bad way just kind of kept them guessing but i mean as far as the fishing thing i'm i think they were not surprised they just maybe didn't know that i was going to take and take it and run with it as much if i knew i was going to do this full time i may maybe would not have gone to school. I mean, I, or at least I would have had a lot more fun and not studied so much because I really wanted to be a teacher and I wasn't thinking that I would be able to be a full-time guide. But when it, when I graduated, um, it came, I took a year off and kind of started, you know, taking this place a little more seriously. And, um, it seemed like I was right at the beginning of something. And the next year I, uh, guided for half the season and we kind of started talking about doing an internet thing. And I was like, man, I'm not sure if I really want to go back to school. I think I'm right at the beginning of something. And I think I'm going to kick myself my entire life if I don't see how far we go here. Um, and I, I'm really happy that I decided to, I mean, I always could have applied back to school and tried to be a teacher. But I'm just really happy with the environment that I found myself in and tried to nurture that. So. So how did the guiding start? Sorry to cut you off. How did it start? Did you finally say, damn it, Kelly, enough? No, no. Um, I, I pretty much helped out with everything here. I worked uh, the shop for a very long time. I really looked up to, you know, some of the guides that, you know, worked for Kelly in the beginning. Um, you know, my buddy Skinny and um, Scotty Hall and uh, Andy and Tim and uh, even Chris. And I mean, it was... It was just really cool. I liked the lifestyle. I thought they're they're really in it for the right reasons, and it I kind of looked up to them. Um, so I was trying to figure out how to do that, and the only way I knew how to do that was to do just to fish as much as humanly possible. I think I would bet you the first two or three years I was here, 
not limited to that, but just especially those first two, I don't think I went a night or a day without fishing. I really didn't. Um, I wanted to learn as much as I could about the Madison. I didn't have a boat yet, so I mostly started on the wade section where we are right now. Um, and then would just pick people's brains about, you know, different floats and, you know, uh, stuff like that. So when I finally did get a boat, like two or three years later, I spent all my time on the Madison. People were like, don't you want to go out and explore? I was like, no, I really want to get to know this river because I want to learn how to guide it one day. So I, that's kind of the way I operate. Like I'm kind of hone in on something and try and pick it apart and, and go from there. But um, I asked him if that would be a possibility. And um, he said, yeah, you know, I think you could do some trips uh, for me. But I actually ended up doing a couple for a few other outfitters um, down in Ennis and said, apparently I got a passing grade. And I started working for Kelly after that. But I think I only did like 25 or 30 trips that later that summer. I started in, you know, late July and kind of went through. But I don't know. There, it's it took me a long time to get to, I mean, nowadays you can get a first year guide out here and it's like, okay, I can guarantee you 80 trips. It took me like seven years to get to that, you know, where I'm working toward a, you know, a final goal. I can, um, you know, support myself, but at the same time, it gives you a lot of time to fish and keep learning and keep trying new bugs and, and trying experiment. So, um, I, I kind of really liked those years. It's the most fun when you do like 60, 70 trips, like you're making decent money, but you still got lots of time off to, to go and fish on your own, which I don't get to do very much anymore. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you, because looking around now at the gas stations in Ennis, at the fly shop, there are so many young men who are obviously anglers, but also guides or, you know, shop guys. Yeah. Was it like that back then? Were no. you one of a hundred? No. no. Okay. Um, that really, really happened, and especially in the last 10 years, but, I mean, especially in the last five. There's just been so many people getting into the sport, and there's a demand. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's exploded. I used to feel like I almost knew, you know, 60 70% of, of the boats that went by, and now I'm like, I have no idea. I just <laughs> wave and say hi and try to, try to be nice to people out there and treat people how I would like to be treated. But there's definitely a, a lot of new, new guys out there. So yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, It was very surprising yeah. for me. Big business out here. I mean, the Madison is just such a consistent... We, have, we get a lot of bad press. We really do. Um, about what, the over... What, what kind? Because I actually... I mean, apart from it being busy, is that what you mean? That's right? it. Yeah, overcrowding. And... Um, there's always a place to find solitude here. I can, I mean, I get a lot of weird requests, but I've never had anybody go, you know, we'd like to fish around the most amount of people as possible. Yeah. You know, you can go early, you can go down river, you can go up river. I mean, if you kind of have your finger on the pulse of what's going on here, you can find solitude. And if you show up at the busiest section at 8.30 in the morning at 9 o'clock, it's sort of like going to a good steakhouse at 7 p.m. It's going to be crowded, but for good reason no matter how much pressure we keep putting on it, it keeps pumping out great fish. And um, it's almost surprising how, how much it keeps going. Um, and yeah, you do hear, well, it's not like it used to be. It's not like it used to be because people have become so good at it. Like people have become so good at catching fish. There's so much information out there. So many books, videos, YouTube, um, all the fly tires out there are just getting to next level stuff. And the fish are seeing everything and they're reacting. Like you can't just go out and throw a Royal Wolf, you know, size eight, size 10 Royal Wolf anymore, which a lot of guys said that that's all you needed in the 80s. Well, people have progressed 
in the sport and the fish have definitely gotten more educated. So that's the only thing about bad press, but our fishery is in, in great shape, in my opinion. I never thought to ask Kelly when I podcasted him because I hadn't actually been here and, and got a lay of the land, but mm-hmm. did, does, I should ask him this, but I'll ask you this. Sure. Does he get grief? Do you guys get grief being, you know, gallops on the, like the slide in? Does it get a lot of um, bad press for bringing in a lot of people, fishing streamers and putting pressure on the fish? I don't think so. You know, we actually have a pretty, um, in the grand scheme of things here, we actually have a pretty small guide staff. We have, yeah. yeah I was surprised by yeah, that. Yeah, a lot of that is on purpose. Like, right. I don't really want to have to deal with dealing with 20 people and go like, you have to be here, you have to be here. It's, it can be a headache. We've, we've tried to grow it, you know, to a point where if the bottom ever did fall out and we only needed three or four people that we wouldn't be putting 15 people out of work. Mm. You know, we probably have eight, eight or nine full-time guides and that's enough. Like, I just think that's enough. Um, there are some outfits out there that have 20 guides and good for them if they can do that. But I don't think you can give us grief for growing it slowly. I mean, there are other people that do get grief, but I mean, that's their choice. And Rivers tend to regulate themselves. If people aren't happy with where they're fishing, then they won't return. And, you know, that's the other thing, too, is there's always drama here. But until you show me it's a resource problem, I I don't think we need to have as many regulations as people really want. Rivers will regulate themselves. If people don't like where they're fishing, they'll probably go somewhere else where they enjoy it. So, I don't know. There's We could talk all day about the in and outs of, of the outfitting industry in the U.S. or Canada or wherever you'd like. But, I mean, ultimately, it, it, uh, if people didn't want to come, they wouldn't, uh, and they keep coming. Yeah, I've, I've been very surprised by just how intimate it is. I mean, that's probably the wrong word for it, but just how small and tight-knit it is. Mm-hmm. I feel like it is, um, you know, there really aren't that many guides. It's not like a big, full-fledged 20-guide operation that's... there. It, yeah, I mean, you mean here? Here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, and well, the slide's, the slide's an interesting place. It takes a special sort of um, uh, brain to work here. I mean, it's it's out in the middle of nowhere. You know, you're not really close to town. Um, and we give people a lot of freedom to do their own thing. Like, I, um, I pretty much let everybody run their own program. I don't say, you need to do this. We know we The only thing that I do do is that we don't do large groups. Um, if we do, I don't let them have more than three boats in one section, usually two, which is kind of how they do it in Idaho. I just, there's been times where you, you know, you're rigging up and you're like, oh, there's two boats here and then seven boats come in and they're all from the same group. And it's like, come on, man, like you're going to eat lunch together, but you're not going to fish together. So why, why do you need to be together? So we, if we have a big group, which we do from time to time, we do, you know, two boats, this section, two boats, this section, two boats, this section. That's the only time that I tell people what to do. Otherwise I let them kind of guide on their own. And so I don't know, it's a fun little community here I've enjoyed and we're, we're we're seeing a lot of uh new faces too that are doing a great job so um hopefully they continue to build on that so the Madison itself then can you tell me a little bit or tell anyone who has not been here a little bit more about it the, the basic stuff how big is it what kind of fish are in it well what are the headwaters all of that fun stuff oh man there's so many other people that could answer that better than me but I'll give you what I can give you um well, its uh, origins are in Yellowstone National Park. It's uh, formed at the confluence of the Firehole and the Gibbon. It goes through sort of a uh, more of a meadowy uh, landscape until it empties into 
Hebgen Lake. I believe the dam was created in 1906, somewhere in there. Don't quote me on that. Um, and then from there down, um, you basically have what we call the 50-mile riffle. Obviously, there's been some changes um, back in the day, there was a more, a little more of a canyon section, which is now Earthquake Lake. We had an earthquake in 1959 that dammed up the river. And so you, Army Corps of Engineers had to come and reroute it. And now we have Lake, which acts as a buffer. And then from there down, there's a natural spillway. Um, and then from there down, it's, it's like uh, unlike any other river you'll ever see. It's just one giant riffle. It doesn't stop. Average depth is three feet. Um, tons of oxygen. Um, we get cooler nights up here, so it keeps it nice and cold. Um, we have rainbow brown, uh, very limited amount of cutthroat, but that you do find a couple once in a while. Um, Liam caught a brook trout today. That's unusual. And I bet you, I know exactly where he caught it. Cause okay. yeah, I've caught one. Jeremy, the shop manager has caught one and apparently Liam caught one today okay. yeah and it was all in that same section i don't know if they're coming up from ennis lake or um or if they're just in this one little area but it's very unusual they're not supposed to be here you could argue that with rainbows and browns but that's a whole different story i happen to like them very much um and then we have mountain whitefish as well yeah the native and uh very important uh <laughs> part of the puzzle here i've noticed that at the shop yeah yeah. It seems to be, are you guys actually fond of them or are you? Is oh man, you know, the whitefish are just such a misunderstood fish. They're such an important part of the ecosystem. You know, they, you know, I, I, when I first got here, there were people that would always say, oh, it's a garbage fish. And, you know, some people, I found one that was thrown up on the bank and I just wanted to find that guy and say, why? Like people said, oh, you know, they, they're out competing the trout. Well, they create a lot of food for the trout. They're eggs and they're juveniles. It's a huge source of protein for a brown trout. And they're actually, they actually fight pretty well. They fight well enough where if some, pe some people are like, oh, it's a big one. It's a, it's a big rainbow. Oh, and they go, oh, it's a whitey. And they're just not as pretty but they're still really important and they're a very important part of the river. They're, they require cleaner and colder water than trout. So they're kind of the canary in the coal mine. Um, so if your whitefish are not doing good, that's not a good sign for your, for your river and your trout could be soon to follow. So it is very important to, to monitor whitefish and, and everything like that. But yeah, the, the Madison, um, has, those are basically the fish that live in it. Um, are they wild? The brown trout? The brown trout are not. I don't know when they were introduced, um, as were the rainbows, but originally it was just cutthroat and whitefish. And I mean, I don't know when they were stocked. I do know. But they're wild now. They don't continue to stock, do they? I don't know. They have not stocked many Montana rivers, any Montana rivers, I believe, since the late 70s. Uh -huh. that, in fact, there's a great piece. Um, let's see. Uh, the movie's escaping me. It was the last Patagonia one on. Um, Dan Rivers and Craig Matthews did a great um, piece on it. Yeah, it was either on Damnation or something else. But either way, the Madison is kind of where it all started. They want, I guess there were um, some fish populations that were going down and they wanted to do a controlled study. So they stocked regular sections of the river and they, they had two control areas that they didn't stock. And they found that after a couple of years that there were more fish and bigger fish. So they stopped stocking altogether. Oh, this is the hatchery. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think, you know, after that, and they saw how successful the program on the Madison was, um, they stopped throughout the, the entire state. 
So yeah, we have just an amazing fishery with no, no stalkers whatsoever, none needed. So that's all self-sustaining fish. And as far as size goes, how big can these fish get? Oh man, um, they're, I would say the average fish on the Madison's probably 15 inches. Um, and you know, I fished here a long time and you know, when you work in the shop, you hear about 28s and 30s all the time, but not a lot of people actually tape their fish. In all the years I've been here, um, the biggest one I've ever personally taped was was 25 inches. Every year somebody does get one a little bit bigger. There's 26s and 27s that are caught. What makes it unique is there are lakes in here where some of those lake fish do come out, especially during the hotter months and then during the spawn. So they can enter the river and they tend to be a lot bigger. Whether or not you know it's a lake fish or not, um, some are pretty obvious. If you're pushing two foot and above and you don't have a mark on you, you probably haven't been in the Madison very long because there's a lot of good anglers out there trying to catch you. So it's possible, but um, but that's sort of, I would say the average fish is about 15 to get back to your original question and they can get big, but they're really strong fish. They're, our fish are kind of like um, marathon runners. They have a strong current pulling against them all day. So they're just, you know, jacked always. And they don't, they don't get super fat. Um, just because they're burning so much energy all the time, except for maybe during salmon flies and stuff like that. I cannot believe how fast they run upstream. Yeah, they're a really strong fish. <laughs> they're pretty hot fish. Yeah. yeah. So what about methodology? What kind of, I understand that you can fish streamers here, nymphs here, dries here. You can basically do everything. You can do everything that you want. Um, sometimes it's more productive uh, depending on what you're looking for um, during certain months. Like I would say, you know, the primary reason people come here and it gets crowded in, in late June and, and early July are for our stonefly hatches. We have incredible salmon fly and golden stones. So the peak of our dry fly seasons usually last month, last month of uh, June, first two to three weeks of July. Sometimes we have a really good hopper season, sometimes not. Um, but the spring and the fall, we have outstanding uh, midge hatches as well. So if you like small dries, it's really fun. It's not great on the boat, but in the upper stretches here, we get really good dry, <coughs> dry fly activity for probably a couple hours a day. So you can pretty much do whatever. The worst time to, though, I think is pretty much when the salmon flies are going for streamer fishing. They're just, there's so much protein there um, that they don't really have to go for a big meal. So uh, when people say, when's the best time to fish streamers? I say pretty much any time except for during salmon flies. That's about it. And when is that usually? Um, man, uh, you know, it, <laughs> if people had a magic number, they would be here for it because there's people who miss it all the time. I always say, historically speaking, with the exception of 2011, they're somewhere on the river by the 27th of June. They could be all the way up here. They could be just kind of in the middle. They could be starting down by Annas. Um, but yeah, 2011, I don't think they even started until like the second or third week of July. It was nuts. They were up here in August. So I've never cool. fished the salmon fly hatch. It's my favorite thing. I don't know anything world. about it and everyone talks about it. Can you share? And I, I genuinely don't know anything about it. So Sam, I don't know. There, it's like the equivalent of streamer fishing with a dry fly. There's very few times you can get giant fish to come up to the surface. Salmon flies and golden stones are one of them. Mostly salmon flies here. Um, and people are really turned off by them because it can be tough, but so can streamer fishing. So if you're a streamer fisherman, you're already kind of like, all right, well, I'll wade through a little bit of slow time to get to what I want. But I mean, sometimes the biggest fish eat on those slow days. Um, those nymphs live for three to four years under the surface, and then they crawl out here at night 
um, and hatch. Then they're around for like three or four days, mate, die. And the nymphal migration in the first couple days is always really tough. It's, I can't even imagine what it must look like under the surface because it's just got to be like an army of bugs crawling. And then usually the fishing's really tough during that time because fish are just eating all night. You catch one and it's like so tall and just packed with bugs. And it's, they'll just like, you can kind of feel them in their, in their stomach. There's so many of them, but when they, um, when they eat that thing, when you put a size two dry fly on and you have a, a really big fish come up and eat it, it's just the coolest thing. It just never gets old. And they're usually big. I mean, every year somebody pops, you know, something in the mid twenties, um, sometimes upper twenties. And that's really the only time you got a shot at those fish putting their heads up. Most of the time they're eating down below. So what does a nymph look like? Well, everybody in the world, you know, wants to throw like these like really realistic stonefly imitations. We still fish a rubber leg. Well, is it a stonefly? Is a salmonfly a stonefly? This I, I wasn't kidding. I really. It know is the largest. Them. It's the largest stonefly there is. Oh really? Yep. 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 So, okay. yeah, it's it'll it'll dwarf a golden. Most of the females are fours to sixes, and then the males are sort of sixes to eights, somewhere in there. Right. So yeah, it's it's awesome, and yeah, again. Some, it, some people are turned off by them. Like, I'd rather, you know, catch fish and, you know, throw caddis, which is true. You know, you can get some really nice fish on it. But when you see a giant brown come up and, and eat a two-and-a-half-inch dry fly, that is just the coolest thing. I mean, it's I, I'm a streamer. I just love streamers. It's one of my favorite things to do. But after that, it's the only thing that can rival that sort of excitement. You get adrenaline fishing that stuff because you're just – hitting banks, hitting stuff out in the middle, and, you know, you're trophy hunting with dry flies, so it's it's kind of special. And that is something that everybody should see at one point. Yes, there are tons of crowds, but there, I don't think I've ever had a day in all the years I've here where we didn't have at least a couple really good fish eat it. And you owe it to those people to show them that if they're out here during that hatch. Like, yeah, you can catch more fish nymphing or whatever, but get a few in there and then just hunt the dry fly because once people see that it, their their mind is blown and it's really cool to to see that and then people chase that feeling for years and years like it could be terrible but they're like I'm just one more cast Let's see how it goes so i get pretty pretty jazzed up for it yeah i'll have to come back for that it is fun it is fun so streamers obviously with kelly Mm-hmm. Streamers have had a major boom. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you've seen a shift in the last decade or so. Yeah. Well, I mean, any time you come in as the new kid, you kind of have to have a niche. And, you know, when, when Kelly first bought it, you, just like anything, you kind of get a cold shoulder. And, you know, you kind of look at these streamers. I remember coming into the shop and looking at Russ Madden's Circus Peanut and going, wow, that thing is huge. And, like, now it's, like, kind of a medium-sized streamer or kind of medium-small. And, you know, people would kind of give him the, uh, well, maybe in Michigan, but out here, things are a little bit different. Good point. Yeah. And it's fun um, chasing that doubt that everybody else says. Like, I'm always on the hunt for the river where they don't eat streamers. Unfortunately, those really don't exist anymore, but they used to all the time here. Yeah, you know, there's so much food. They you, they only eat dead drifted leeches or stuff like that. And it's like, okay, so there's big brown trout, and you're telling me they don't eat big stuff all right well we'll go check that out and most of the time it's going to happen you just got to figure out when where and how and what patterns to kind of go after them with so that's sort of where we developed um 
or I would say Kelly, but we also, um, the team of the slide in, we kind of branched out from there and started offering, you know, more streamer, um, extreme streamer focused trips. Like a lot of people tie them on at the end of the day after nothing's working, we start with them and we don't take them off because we're trying to figure out what they want and if they want it. And, um, that's kind of where we, we grew from there. A lot of people wanted to kind of get in on that and it was, it was really special back then because man when you cracked it it's still good now but man when you when we hit a new pattern it was it was really something to watch how fish reacted like they hadn't seen it before and they'd move six or seven feet and just chomp on it and it was it was fun we were always kind of looking for that that new bug um still am still are so do you think that they've gotten used to them by now do you or do you think that there's still a, some sort of shock factor i think they have um but I also think that there's always something new to try um, and to find different triggers for them. But there's so many good fly tires and, and guides and, and do-it-yourself fishermen and uh, people trying to keep cracking the code that, you know, eventually, I mean, how much further can you, can you push it? I, I hope that people will continue to do it. And every time there's a roadblock, somebody goes through it. And so... I don't know. I, I think they have been a little bit more accustomed to it, but it's still really, really good. I just, I don't see it at quite as good um, during late July and early August as it used to be, but the spring and the fall still can be outstanding. And I don't know. It's, it's just a fun way to pass the time. Are there any secrets? There's always secrets. There's no secrets on the Madison as far as where to go, but I mean, you know, pe- uh, pe- fishermen are always superstitious and they're, they try to keep a, you know, keep it under their hat kind of deal. Like, don't tell anybody, but this is working really well. But eventually they can't keep their mouth shut and it gets out. So, I feel like, and I'll, I'll, I'll wade carefully here, I'll tread carefully, because I was um, out today and, and chatting with Declan about the way that you guys have been fishing. And, he, and he's asked me to leave some of the stuff off of YouTube, which I will happily do. Mm-hmm. But um, your guys' rigs are so unique. I've never fished anything quite like it is that a secret rig no do you want to talk about it not really okay <laughs> you just have to come it's, and book out here yeah it's not really and that's not our rig i mean it's i don't know i could i knew this question would come up <laughs> is this a pass uh, it's kind of a pass i mean it's it it's very effective for what it is but it only it works for two or three weeks a year and there it's not as fun is the way I usually like to do it but it's definitely not our rig it's been done many many times over on every river I know of and a lot a lot by guides as well so yeah I mean it, it uh, sometimes when fish are just looking for a big meal and they're lazy you got to get it right down in their face and I'll leave it at that Got it. Well, I've been enjoying fishing. I'm assuming we can talk about sculpins. Sure. I've been enjoying fishing streamers. Yeah. And wanted to talk to you a little bit about different colors, sizes, mm-hmm. the, you know, what, when, where, why. Now, to be fair, because I've just spent a few days filming with Kelly, my brain has been on fire mm-hmm. with all the technical aspects of streamers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I don't want to relive it all right now, especially with Kelly here mm-hmm. cooking behind you, because I don't want to make him relive it either. But... 
with you and your style of fishing, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on when to fish yellow versus green versus white or black? Because today I went to put on a yellow fly and Declan was like, are you sure you want to do that? Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts on that? Man, a lot of it is trial and error. And my favorite thing in the world is going to a new river and trying to figure out kind of like the pattern, the profile, the color, how much flash they like. Every river is so different. Like here, I kind of go down the color, like if, say it's a bright day. I start super bright and I go down the color spectrum until I get to, you know, black. Um, I don't have a lot of confidence in black here on a sunny day. There are other rivers that I do. Uh, and that's kind of the fun part is as long as you keep trying new stuff, you can figure it out. There are a lot of people who say, I don't buy into it. I don't buy into the whole color thing. I've just been doing it too long. And I watch guys in the back putting stuff that I just tied on, go over the same water that the guy in the front and just roping them. Change the fly out in the front, same response. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the fishery that you're in. Like we have a, a pretty we have a lot of fish in here. And so it's a great laboratory. Like if you go half a mile, you've passed a lot of fish. Yeah. So, and then there's some areas where, you know, there are higher concentrations of fish than others. So if you might, you might go 300 yards and be like, Oh man, we didn't move a fish in there. Like some, when it's good, you might move, you know, seven or eight in there. So a lot of it's just kind of cataloging this over the years. And, um, I think color, obviously presentation is most important. If you can't get it there you can't hunt it, then it's not going to work anyway. But color and then um, size and, and profile after that. Like you can have the right color, but it might not be what they're looking for as far as the size and the profile. So that's kind of how I'm, I'm very much on Kelly's program as far as um, how I cycle through flies. And some people say it's too much, but I just – I'm. I, I just want to be able to sleep that night knowing that I tried everything instead of like laying awake going, well, I wonder if we tried this, if we would have had a better day. So that's kind of how, how I operate through that. It's very similar to Kelly's. We just tend to have, he kind of goes bookends where he'll go white, black and go and meet in the middle. And I'll kind of go down the color spectrum or up the color spectrum. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is there anything that you guys disagree on? Everything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you were, are we talking fishing or life? No, I figured with life. I'm uh, okay. Fishing. No, no. Um, man, I, of course. I mean, uh, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but we have arguments about this stuff all the time. It's a long winter here and there's nobody in the shop sometimes. <laughs> so we kind of pick each other apart and say like, oh, I buy into this. I don't buy into that. Um, you know, obviously Kelly's made a name for himself being really good at it. So he's on to something. But, you know, my job is to poke the bear and be like, are you sure? Things have changed here. And so maybe it's not this anymore. Um, but that's a big part of, you know, 
prolonging your certainty in things only cultivates like failure. Um, so kind of keeping an open mind and, and um, listening to other people, which I do all the time is really important. I've, I've had uh, people come in and say, do you mind if I try this fly and take a look at it and go, I would love for you to try that fly. I hope it works. Cause I would never throw that in a million years and they throw it and I'm like, sweet. I got another one in the quiver, you know? So uh, I, I like that sort of, um, dialogue where you're, you know, it's not that we're arguing for the sake of arguing. It's just, you know, we have different, um, everybody's got a little bit different system out there and comparing notes is really important to making everybody better. So yes, I do disagree with what Kelly says, but I agree with a lot of what he says. Well, speaking of making a name for yourself and poking the bear, that is my job to poke Mm -hmm. the bear sometimes. You are not really into having your name out there and putting your face out there. And I want to know why. What's the story? I don't know. It's that's, I feel like I'm a lot better than I used to be. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just like, um, I've always been better with small groups and just hanging out with, you know, small people. I've never really wanted to truly make a name for myself. I just really wanted to try and get, better at the things that I like to do. And I, I think I was a lot more paranoid about the spotlight, you know, earlier on when I was younger. Um, I'm still not exactly, you know, wanting that a lot, but just part of my personality. I don't know. Um, but I feel like I'm getting better. I don't, <clears throat> I just, I just, uh, I don't really have an answer for you. It's just who I am. It's, it's <laughs> happening whether you like it or not. Yeah. How are you managing with that? With Because I notice even with my group, everybody wants to go with Johnny. It's actually, to be honest, just between us. It's a little frustrating because there's just not enough for you to go around. Do you feel I think a lot pressure? of it's just a, Not really. I, I just think I've been around long enough that I'm familiar to people, that I'm associated with this place, and people might want to know who I am because... I'm not really out there, so they have to come and find out for themselves. I don't know why. I don't know why people like to keep fishing with me. It's, I think they just come back for more punishment every year. But um, at this point, I, I kind of know a lot of the people that I get to take out every year, and it's kind of fun. Um, so getting to fish with new people is, is a lot of fun. Um, um, yeah, I mean... I don't know what else to say. Well, you're not burnt out yet. So. I'm not burnt out yet. I love it. I still wake up every day excited to go. And it's tiring. It's physically tiring, but I truly enjoy it. And if you're tired and you're not excited to go out there, then, yeah, it can wear on you. But I, I don't really feel the grind. I, you know, Some people, it really gets to them. The most important thing for me is changing the view. I do not do the same section very much. Uh, I always have to keep going to new rivers or to going to new places. And I think that's a big part of the job is not making it one. You know, there's fish everywhere. And the more you show people your world, like go take them over to a different river one day or a different section. Like it's not just about putting numbers in the boat. It's about having a good time teaching them things that they're interested in, making them better, and then showing them a lot of cool stuff. And Montana is a really good place to do that. So by changing the view, changing the techniques, changing where we go, it becomes more dynamic. And I think that's the key to keeping it fresh. So that's, that's, I don't know. It's been, this will be my 17th full season, not counting the the half season I did. 
um, before that, and I, I still really, really enjoy it. I, I don't know when that will fizzle out, but it's not yet. Yeah, so. it doesn't look like, I mean, you looked so passionate out there. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but thank you. It's all in. I can tell, you know, you, you go by some boats and you can tell the guy, the guide is just trying to pass the day away. You're really, out. every single time we, we, that we pass you or you pass us, you're really trying your hardest. I have no recollection. I don't see you out there. I only have my guys. And so, yeah, <laughs> I, when I stop and I see, I saw you land a couple of really nice fish uh, yesterday, but that's about it. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that could be my, maybe one of my drawbacks is I can sometimes be a little intense for people, but not in a negative way. Like maybe I'm just so honed in that it's not really about, you know, Hey, I'm on the river. I'm like, you're here for a reason. That's, that's, make you better let's catch some fish and then you know once we get a few in there then we can start talking politics or whatever which is one of my rules no politics no religion no nothing so but yeah i do i do really enjoy it what are your thoughts on swinging the fly i was doing a little bit of that yesterday i did get a couple yesterday on this on the swung fly i tried again today fishing was harder today admittedly um Mm -hmm. didn't get oh well i got a couple little guys Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts why would a brown trout be more prone to taking a stripped fly versus a I think it depends on where you're at. The only thing that I can tell you, because I know a lot of a lot of my friends are swingers. Uh, and, uh, uh, <laughs> no, um, I don't know. There, you can catch a fish stripping. You can catch a fish swinging. I prefer stripping. It's more active. I think you can trigger fish better. Um, the one thing I will say is that any fish that comes out of a reservoir or is migratory. They tend to eat at the end of the swing a lot more than residents. So, like in the fall, when you have things coming out of Hebgen Lake and Ennis Lake and um, a lot of other places, if they're mig- migratory, I do notice that at the end of the swing is almost really effective, so much that people can commit to the swing and still catch a lot of fish. Um, resident fish, I don't find it to can I stop you there. Sure. So, is that because, though, at the end of the swing, you are stripping to recast? No, not really. I'm at, at the end, I almost swing it and then strip a little bit, but it's still going through it like that, basically, just like a swing. Um, I don't know the answer to that. It's just something that a lot of us have, you know, noticed in, in fishing out there. I mean, I, I'm not very good at it, but I did, I mean, I love swinging for steelhead. We talked about that. I mean, I've been to the clear water and, and the salmon and stuff, but I'm by no means a steelheader. I've caught fish, but I just, I really like the swing. And somebody told me like, just let it swing. I, I don't know. I have a hard time just letting it swing. I felt like every time I stepped down, it's a different swing. And like, there's a current there and I'm like, okay, well that should be where the fish is. Like, I'm, I don't want it to go, maybe I want it to go through faster if it's, if they're not eating and I want to trigger them, or maybe I want to keep it in there a little bit longer if it's super cold. Like that's, the swing is not just mindless. It can be if you let it, but you can make it different. I think the just let it swings are for stoners and Mm -hmm. people who just don't want to work very hard okay well so you agree with that <laughs> I agree. yeah no but I, I mean i think um I, in general i i have more success um uh, moving the fly actively whether that's you know uh jerk strip short strip vertical jig and try and figure that out then i do swing not to say that you cannot catch fish swinging here at all i just find that moving it tends to be more effective um and i don't find that swinging um, when they're lethargic 
is any better. Sometimes like, I mean, especially like if you go to the Missouri and stuff and you see all like trout space is really good when the water's cold because they're more lethargic. You cover more water and you're not ripping it across and expecting trout in 36 degree water to be like, oh, I think I'll go chase that down. You know, they're like, okay, uh, I think I'll eat that. Oh, I shouldn't have eaten that. <laughs> yeah. So there's a time and a place for, for it all. But I, yeah, I prefer moving it actively when I can. Okay. Um, again, it's one of these things where I feel like I've just spoke about it ad nauseum with Kelly about the jerk strip, the ver- uh-huh. you know, the vertical strip, the uh-huh. stalling. Can you talk a little bit about that for people who have no idea what we're talking about right now? Essentially, it's you know, instead of pulling, we always say it's it's you're mo- you want to move the fly, you don't want to pull the line. You can when people are just pulling the line, they're expecting fish, but they're not really pulling for a reason. They're just they're pulling because that's what you're supposed to do. With um, jerk strip is the the name that Kelly termed for you know basically jerking um, the fly with your rod tip and then stripping in the excess slack. So you're jerking and then stripping, jerking and stripping, and it's a bit like patting your head and rubbing your stomach when you first start. It's really difficult for people, but once you get that down, um, you can kind of work on a bunch of different retrieves and. Um, it's basically staying in touch with the fly, keeping your rod in a position where it doesn't get behind you, that you're ready for a fish when it eats. Um, and then just having line control, which is everything. I mean, line control, dry fly, nymphs, streamers, anything that's, that's the key. And then hunting after that is comes down to, you know, your arsenal. What are you going to throw at them? What, what do you think is effective? Um, so moving the, moving the fly with your rod tip is kind of what we preach here. So that's what a lot of people come here to learn how to do. And what about the vertical jig? Vertical jig is particularly effective when it's cooler, especially big temperature drops. Um, If you have a cold night and water temperature drops seven, eight degrees, you know, they may not be as active. And so you have to kind of get down to them. We can change leaders. We can change, you know, profiles that, that dip down a little bit to get down to those fish. Usually eat it on the drop. I mean, and that's no different than, you know, bass fishing. That's where I learned how to do it. I, grew up fishing smallmouth and did a lot of jigging. So it kind of came a little more naturally to me. Um, also, I think it's effective for certain um, patterns, le- leeches, crawdad stuff that kind of twitches, maybe goes a little bit more up and down. I don't tend to do it as much on sculpin um, or don't, not really natural. I mean, you can, if you just have to do it with a little bit more modified speed because they're darters. I mean, there's no sculpting that's like, I'm just going to kind of casually go up and down. And yeah, they're darters. I like to move them quick. Um, and, but it's very effective with crayfish leeches and, and other stuff like that, or just stuff that looks buggy or is more of a trigger fly. But that's when I use that. Are they not line shy? I've been surprised with no. how much I'm encouraged to have a downstream belly. No, they're not line. They're for streamers. No, I remember one time. Boy, this is a long time ago. It's like the first summer, second summer I was here. I wanted to see what I could get away with, um, and so I took basically. I didn't have. I think I got like forty pound. Maxima that somebody had left and I wanted to see if I could catch fish on it and I had a, a black woolly sculp and it was a cloudy day I went below the west fork of the Madison fished all the way down the lines and they just come out of the woodwork for it if you're if you're moving it they don't have time to be like 
I see something, you know, if you're dead drifting and stuff, then I, I do think it makes a difference. I think, um, finding the balance of like, what can I get away with, with strength and then having something that has the diameter to make it swim properly. Like if you go to 40 pound, it's a little rigid. You're not going to get quite the amount of movement as we do with, it seems like 12 pound is right in the, just the sweet spot. So it's, you can't break it. We're talking about maxima, obviously you can't break it, but it's a limp enough where you do get the movement of the fly. And so it's kind of right in there. And it's funny because we've fished eight pound for steelhead and we fished 12 pound for trout that are a third of their size. But with streamers, you're knocking rocks and, and wood and stuff like that. And so you do tend to hit a lot more surfaces and, and create a little bit more abrasion on it. So it's a little more important. Mm-hmm. I've been surprised with just how bright and wide open the river's been. Mm-hmm. And we're catching fish in the, in the middle of the open. This river likes sun. I mean, it also likes clouds. But it, it, um, I've, I haven't really been to too many rivers where you can go and it's bright, high sun, and you can have fish eating dry flies. You can have them eating streamers. You can have them. I mean, obviously, when I, I prefer a little bit overcast, as, as do everybody. It keeps the, you know, the heat away and, and fish are a little more comfortable. But to tell you the truth, I honestly, most of my really big fish in here and all a lot of other rivers in the state are in bright sun. What are they doing there? There are so many other places. And they're not even underneath riffles or whitewater. They're just in the open. Kelly actually had a really good line for that. <laughs> I asked him, I said... I don't know, like where, if you were a big fish, where, you, where would you be here? And he goes, you know where big fish live? Wherever they want. And I was like, oh, that's a good way of doing it. I'm constantly surprised where you find them. You know, this time of year, they're generally in very shallow riffles, um, that generally in like two to six inches, of, two feet to six inches of water. Browns tend to go to like the top of the runs in this river just above the big holes where you think they're going to be. And there'll be st- tons of rainbows down there. And then the big fish are just like right at the top in this much water. So they do it, you know, cool down, aeration. There could be pressure and they're just not getting screwed with very much up there. But I think a lot of the times, a lot of the big fish that we catch, most of my friends included, they're not expecting them to come out where they, they do. They're never at the big log jam, you know, that just screams big fish. It's always just the inside bends just on the seam, three feet, feet, feet of water. It, it's uh, you just got to cover it all and try and deduce like where where your best chances are. It's like, OK, they're not in the deep stuff. Are they in the shallow stuff? What about the in between? Are they in the middle off bank? Are they right on the bank? That's the fun part is like trying to figure it out every every day and, and every week. It changes all the time. Is that, is that specific to the Madison? No. Is that all brown trout? I and large browns, browns in general just are the most insane fish. They're so, like when, they're, when they get really big, they're just so hard to catch. They're so hard to catch. They're so smart. They're eating generally when we're asleep. And um, to get them during the day, it takes a lot of time and um, a lot of effort. And I just think like really as you... <clears throat> There's Kelly over there. As he said in his uh, new book, uh, Real Brown Trout, and by real brown trout, I mean a, t- a brown trout 28 inches and above, um, has got to be the fish of 10,000 lifetimes or whatever it was. Because it really is. I mean, you can spend years in, in a good, solid habitat where you know that those fish exist. And if you get a shot every year, you're doing something right. You know, or 
I don't know the night game. That's a whole different story. But as far as during the day, yeah, that's re- it's really hard to crack. Do you do the night game here? There's stuff out here that'll eat you. What? Oh yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I we we don't do it as much. It's really good. Like if you're going through a breakup or divorce or you have nothing to live for, it's great to go fishing at night and. But I don't know. They're, they're the places that you want to be around here fishing at night where the big ones are, are. There's a lot of bears. So you have to tread lightly and be with people that you trust. And it does. You do run into creatures. Yeah, actually. I, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yep. I probably would have a lot more. I, I used to fish when I chased salmon flies when I was working in the shop. I'd chase them from Ennis all the way up to here and usually start fishing at 7 and then get off the river at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock and... Um, I try and fish as late as I could, but you always run into weird stuff out there. So, and you hear stuff crashing through the bushes and you're like, I should not be here for whatever reason, but it was fun. I need to get back to my car as soon as possible. (laughs) I noticed today that all the guides seem to have their guests on dry flies at the same time. What are you looking for? What, what is good dry fly conditions? Depends on the time of year. Like, Sometimes we start at O-Dark 30, you know, with dry flies if it's fishing best, especially like the early part of the salmon flies and nocturnal stones and stuff. But here, um, you know, our our aquatic insects this time of year are starting to dwindle. So, you know, most of the good terrestrial fishing here generally starts afternoon. So it's not really worth your while to start throwing a hopper at 9 o'clock. Not to say you might not catch a fish, but most of the time... Just around here, and that's just from trial and error and experience, it's going to be, you know, from like 12, 1230 until about 435. So people are trying to crack the hopper game, which still hasn't really gotten going yet. We had a few good days uh, early last week, but everybody's trying to figure out, okay, will they eat them today? Oh, and then okay. they'll give, you know, four or five, six patterns a whirl, and then uh, it's not happening. We'll have to go back under four. I was wondering, because that's kind of what it felt like, but I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I was yeah. <clears throat> This river is weird because, well, I think that's, <clears throat> it's pretty common with terrestrial fishing everywhere. Like I call it a prospecting river because it's, a, because it's such a big riffle. You don't see rise forms very much, except for at night or... Uh, during various parts of the year where you actually have mayflies that are going into soft water and you can watch fish feed. We're mostly a caddis river and they're eating stuff just under the surface and they're eating here and eating there sporadic. So you don't hear them. You don't see rise forms. You're just prospecting. You're like, okay, well, these these insects are here. I'm going to go down the line and see if I can get anything to come up. And it's really fun when you crack it because you realize how many fish are actually eating and you're just not paying attention or you can't see them because unless you're honed in on one specific area, you don't see that happening. Yeah, I can see that. Speaking of fly change, what is your theory on that? In what regard? When do you change flies? When they don't work. Okay, when do you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, With streamers, um, I think it depends on where I'm fishing and fish population. If you go to an area like the Missouri... um, you know, that could have five, 6,000 fish per mile. I might change every two to three minutes if it's a good section. If it's the Madison, you know, with streamers, five to 10 minutes tops. But if you go to a place where you might have 500 or 600 fish per mile, I might give it 25 minutes. I don't know. Um, It definitely, and then also certain spots, like 
I have what I call indicator holes, but they're not for nymphing. If I don't have a fish eat in that area, it's indicative of the fact that I have the wrong fly on. And I think a lot of people kind of have those areas where over time they're like, well, if I didn't see one there, I'm probably not going to see one down below. So I'll change my fly. Um, there's areas like right below boat ramps where if I'll go a hundred yards, I'm like, okay, well, we just passed 60 or 70 really good fish that didn't want it. It's probably not going to happen down the line here either. So time to change. So it surprises people. And then there's also sections of river where I'm like, I don't really think there's that many fish in there. So I'll go, you know, five or 10 minutes and be like, I'm not going to really put any salt into what I'm throwing until I get to this spot. So a lot of it's just kind of knowing the river and, and experimentation. So I change, I do change flies quite a bit. Yeah. I noticed yesterday boat etiquette. Yeah. And it was actually really surprising. I thought that it was going to be a shit show out there. Mm-hmm. But everyone was really, it seems to be very courteous. courteous it's gotten worse here. Uh, a lot of it is our fault for not being the old guards that we had to grow up with where, oh man, if you did something wrong, you heard about it. And I think the Madison's a busy place. And so if people are just pulling anchor and by pulling anchor, I mean like, let's say you're anchored up and you look behind you and there's a boat a hundred yards away and they're fishing right behind you. You pull up your anchor and you start fishing. That's called pulling anchor for those who don't know what that is. Um, I, in my, in my experience, I, if I, if somebody's behind me within 200 yards, I let that boat go. You know, I don't want to pull anchor on somebody. I don't like it when they do it to me. So we pass it on. And that's the other thing that I I really harp on some of our guides to do is to be polite out there and to treat other boats, you know, as you'd like to be treated. So there is, there is some good etiquette that goes on in in the Madison. Um, Definitely changes in some spots. And there are some people that have to be told, you know, that was not the right answer. Um, You know, if, uh, if you do, if you do it multiple times, you, you will get called out and it's nothing personal. It's just usually ignorance. Um, said, Oh, I didn't know that was how it went here. Well, it is kind of how it went. Cause if we didn't have that, it would be anarchy and it's just nice. And it, you know, what's the worst thing that happens? There's a lot of boats. Okay. I get to go sit on the bank, tell a few stories, look at this beautiful scenery for 20 minutes. I always tell people there's worse places to be stuck in traffic, even though we try not to be in traffic. What about dragging anchor? So that's different than pulling anchor. Dragging anchor is not great etiquette either. You know, you're stirring up the bottom a little bit, and also you're moving. Um, it's just I've always been told that that was poor etiquette. I guess uh, I abide by it if I'm going to try and – I mean, Madison and, the, and <laughs> the Madison River and anchors do not get along. Um, it's not an easy place to anchor. So there are times where you might drag it while you're trying to find a spot but like parking in the middle of the river or dragging an anchor in the middle of the river is generally seen as, is not good. And you know, if you're, if you got stuff that you need to do, you can pull over to the bank, get your stuff together and let other people fish until you're ready to get back out there. Hunter had mentioned a couple times of, you know, boats being sunk and I thought he was kidding. And then yesterday someone sunk a boat. Happens. How does it happen? As Kelly told me and a lot of other people before him, there are two types of boat owners, those who have sunk their boats and those who haven't yet. Um, I have not, I've, I've been lucky, um, but it does happen. We, we do get, you know, a handful of boats that sink every year from a safety perspective. This is a great river to go down in because the worst thing that happens is you hit your head on a rock, which would be really bad, but there's no hydraulics, big log jams, stuff that you can get swept into. And 
and die. Uh, most of the time, you're just going to high side your boat. You, there's usually a way to get to it once the water recedes or um, once you get the proper, you know, rope and, and pulleys and stuff. But, you know, it, there's a lot of boulders. Once you get on a boulder and you hit it on the side, it's just, it happens so quick. You swamp it or it'll go over and, you know, it's just, uh, it, it happens to guides. It happens to first timers and everybody in between. And hopefully everybody swims out okay. I don't think there's been um, any fatalities from a drift boat perspective in this river since I've been here. So yeah, knock on wood. Right. Okay. I feel like I have other fishing questions. Again, I'm, my brain's going back into Kelly's class and I don't want to make everyone relive it, but there are going to be people listening to this podcast right now who have not watched the class. So mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a couple of things that might be general knowledge, but um, I think we should cover. Okay. Fishing out of the boat. Mm -hmm. Front, back, what are the angles? Because admittedly, I struggled with this a bit today. I, I feel like we were kind of competing for the same spot. Um, you know, it, it's pretty simple. Uh, generally, if you're a streamer fishing or an nymphing, you're generally, everybody's got their own opinion on this, but generally speaking, you're, you're perpendicular to the bow of the boat. So you're throwing 90 degrees out. Guy in the front doesn't go past the oar, doesn't go behind the oar, that being um, upstream. And the guy in the back throws the same way, doesn't go too far behind the boat, doesn't go in front of the oar. Uh, when you're dry fly fishing, to if you can do it, um, I like to have people at more of an angle where you're throwing forward because you have less currents that you have to deal with. Usually you only need one mend after that. So person in the front, let's say if they're fishing on the left side would be you know more toward 11, between 10 and 11 o'clock somewhere in there so that way they just need to do maybe one man maybe two and then they can let it drift it is difficult because if one person deviates from that then people kind of get caught in the back cast so dry flies a little more downstream streamers and nymphs more perpendicular with the, with the bow of the boat okay any other things any other questions i should be asking about techniques that you encounter every day what are some of your more common questions specific to the madison um, man, it, there's so many, I don't, I don't think there's really any general ones. People, um, just say like, what can I do to help? You know? And I'm like, well, nothing really. I mean, that's always the most common question when we get out of the car, what can I do to help? I'm like, well, just hang out here. I'm going to go get my stuff and put it in the water and then, then we're going to get to work. But, um, I don't really think there's too many common questions as far as fishing. Everybody's a little bit different. And it's just trying to figure out how to get through to them and how to communicate with them. Um, some people have just little quirks that, you know, it's really hard for them to figure out, like, how to set the hook, how to transfer the line to under your finger was a big one one time. And I was like, well, it's just, you just put it underneath it. And it was really hard for that person to do so. Um, so you work on different ways to try and, you know, get in their head about how to do things properly. And... Um, so it changes all the time. I'm not sure there's really one common question that comes up very much. Yeah. Do you set the hook on everything? Um, no, I don't. And I, it, I guess it, I mean, obviously dries. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. If I think, I mean, if, if a wave looks like a fish, I'll, I'll do it. I've only had one time it happened with, uh, one of my clients, Dave, I've never seen it since. We were fishing below Wolf Creek and we were throwing it salmon fly. It's a huge bug. And we both at the same time just saw it vanish. And I went, 
set. And he set, and there was a fish. And to this day, I have no idea. Not like, on a dropper, on the dry. On the, on the dry. And it wasn't that big of a fish either. It w- and it wasn't in a spot that there was like that big of a wave where it got sucked under. We, st- we talk about it all the time. It's a, it was like an optical illusion. Like it just disappeared and there was a fish there, but there was no suction. There was no disturbance. One of the stranger things I've ever seen. But, but could you see the suction? No. No, I mean, in, but usually can you see yes. the suction? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when a when a... Generally, big fish eat big dries really deliberately and um, barely make an impression. They're lazy. They come up, they grab it just like that. You know, teenagers, they go, I'm going to go get that thing, you know, and just splash really hard. The big ones, they just, they come up and eat it. Like, what are you going to (laughs) do? So I set the hook on that. Uh, If I'm nymphing in certain spots and I see it ticking bottom, then I kind of know what the ticks look like. Unless they get really, really, really um, picky. But I always feel like I can tell if I'm fishing in an indicator what the fish are doing. So I don't set on everything, but I'd set most of the time. Yeah. Streamers, if there's any tension, absolutely. They can be really, really soft, especially when you're fishing in colder water, smaller leech patterns and stuff where some fish will just come up and, and just touch it, just grab it. And I'll set on that every time, anytime I make contact with it. What are the seasons? Is it is it shut? Is it open on all the way till ice? Open year round. We don't get ice. Round? Yeah, we don't get. It didn't used to be the way. They used to shut it um, March first through the third Saturday in July for the upper river. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't get ice from where it comes out of the dam pretty much all the way until. I mean, we can get floater ice, but it's usually fishable all the way up until a little bit below Lions Bridge, and then there's too much stuff floating down from there. The lower river is the only place that actually freezes, and that's generally five to six miles above Ennis on a big winter, and even four miles above Ennis on a regular winter. We have this crazy thing called an ice gorge, and it's impressive. It, like, freezes from the bottom up, and it'll get all the way up to the the bridge, and it kind of diverts the... Um, the river into fields and stuff sometimes so we fish here all winter um it's fun because the best fishing is from noon to three o'clock and you don't have to get up early so you're fishing all fall you're hunting big fish getting up super early it's exhausting could be a grind you might not get what you're looking for and then you know december comes and you kind of let it go as a, a new season is starting and you have your midge box and you go out with a dry fly rod and you have four or five patterns and you catch 14 to 18 inch trout on single dries and it's uh you get back to kind of the simple times and uh, winter can be long and we have outstanding midge fishing here during the winter so it's it's really fun as long as it's not too windy which it can be right yeah so if it's open year round how do how do you guys work around the spawn when and where are they spawning they're they're spawning generally in the upper sections uh just below here particularly in fact you can go out right by kelly's channel and there'll be sometimes 30 or 40 pairs you know there's not as many channels as there used to be um but there's definitely areas where they spawn more than others and it's kind of cool we don't really have a, a fish spawning or we don't really have a culture that really targets spawning fish very much here. Um, that does happen in a lot of other areas, but for the most part, people leave them alone. And it, it also helps um, that we're in a freezing place. <laughs> it gets really cold, so people will sometimes go to warmer climates where it might get up to you know 50 or 60 instead of 30 uh, here. But we try to just you know use common sense, seeing fish spawn, leave them alone, and 
um, trying to educate people on what a spotting red looks like and how to approach it, not to fish it or not to walk right behind it because they usually end up a little bit further down. It's better, probably better to step just on top of it than anything else. So, yeah, they they seem to be doing pretty well. There's a lot of smaller fish in the river again this year, um, and I don't know. We we try to fish around the spawn and try not to target the areas where they're spawning. Good answer. I like it. Mm-hmm. What's in your future? I don't know. Um, you know, there's, you never know. We're coming to a time where, you know, things are up in, in the air as far as, you know, what's, what's going on with our lives. And I don't know. I kind of take it one step at a time and, um, you know, try and try and go forward from there. I've been with Kelly for a long time. I, I plan on working for him for as long as humanly possible. And I don't know if I'll ever be a, a part of this um, organization as far as having a holding in it. But if not, then I will be here spiritually forever because this is basically where I chose my second home. Um, I've been here for a very long time, really enjoy everything about it. Um, and um, the person who I've come to be because of it. So I don't know what the future holds. I, I really don't think as much as people think they do. Um, I really in, enjoy the, the saying life's what happens when you're making other plans. So I try and always keep an open mind about where my life might be heading. So I knew, I do know that I will be hopefully a part of fishing for the foreseeable future. That's my final answer. <laughs> <laughs> if people did want to book you, I should say when people would like to book you, mm-hmm. how can they go about doing that? Oh, well, I mean, I'm usually in the shop during the winter. I'm out on the water a lot during the summer, but all the guys at the shop have my calendar and they can usually try and get a, get a day with me. So get so in early folks. Now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I do have quite a few people that, um, I usually have the same time every year. So there are times when I'm booked, but you know, you never know. I always have some open days. <laughs> do you guide in the winter? I don't. I don't think we've ever been. At, have we ever been asked for a guide trip? No, I don't think we ever have, ever. And one of my best friends, Trey, he um, Trey Brash works over on in Big Sky, and they have you know kind of a revolving clientele there. Where you know if the skiing's not great, they'll go out and book, and he'll have like forty or fifty days on the books before I even start. So he does a lot of lot of guiding during the winter. If you want a good winter guide, you should you should contact Trey. He knows what he's doing. I taught him everything he knows, but he knows what he's doing. Is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? Sort of putting me right in spotlight, and I don't like it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't really. Uh, I, okay, well, how about one question? You do not have to ask me anything. I'm happy to escape this question. Okay, well, then <laughs> I will leave it at that. Uh, it's been a, you know, a long day in the sun, and God knows what I might ask. So um, I really appreciate you having me on, and um, but I appreciate for, the time. Thanks for coming on. Of course. Of course. Thank you for having me. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week when I sit down with Beck Hogan. Beck Hogan.